Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So in case you haven't heard, I'm going to be doing a free five-day immersive workshop. It's called Your Soul's Calling. Your Soul's Calling. A, it's true. Your soul is calling. It's calling to you. And B, yeah, you have a calling. You've been put in this world because you are called. You are called to use your gifts And you know it, there's a part of you that feels that and knows that. And so during these five days, I will be with you live every day. And if you sign up, even if you can't make it live, I will send you the replay. So come and join me. You can go to kathyheller.com slash challenge. And I will be there to help you figure out how do you truly step into what is your calling? How do you decipher it? And how can you start to make a living and real abundance sharing your gifts with the world. So this is going to be jam-packed with information. Come and join us. It's five days. I I love getting to be with you and and taking the conversation to something that's more interactive than just this beautiful podcast. This is a a way for me to actually interact with you every day um, for a week. So I can't wait. It starts June 7th. Grab your spot. It's free. Go to kathyheller.com slash challenge. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm really happy because today we have another fascinating conversation with the brilliant Adam Grant. He's kind of been everywhere, but in case you don't know him, he's an organizational psychologist. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author, a top rated professor at Wharton, and his TED Talks have been viewed over 25 million times. He came on the show a couple of years ago to talk about some of his eye-opening books like Give and Take, Originals, Option B. And this time he's sharing the biggest lessons from his latest book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. In this book, he examines the critical art of rethinking, teaching you to question your opinions and open people's minds. This invites you to let go of thoughts and feelings and views that might no longer be serving you and to help you step into a more flexible mindset so you can become a curious lifelong learner. And I really think that really we need to be willing to understand and to open our eyes and to get curious. And instead of just reading headlines and hashtags, we need to really take a stand and and, and look into things. And also in our own life, when we say that we're good at this, but we're not good at that, or this is possible, but that's not possible, or we believe in in somebody else's ability to do something, but we don't believe in our own abilities. Like we, we have to be willing to look at things and to think about things in a way that actually gives us the truth and a bigger view of, of what's really going on. You know, it says um, in the science that we actually are taking in about 4,000 pieces of information every second, but the brain only actually receives half of that because we only We only will actually take in that which we have a context for, which basically means we only see what we believe. And it's true. Like if you were to look at something or you were to shoot a video of something, the video would actually see more than you see with your eyes because your eyes are only going to see what is limited based upon what your brain believes or doesn't believe. And so that's why if you are looking for a red car, next thing you know, you're going to be seeing red cars everywhere. If you have a certain kind of a bias, you're going to see it everywhere. If you have a certain kind of a belief, you will find the evidence of that belief everywhere. And so it's really helpful to listen to what Adam is saying to fully open our eyes to all that is here, which gives us so many more possibilities about how we can live a life that is truly, truly the most fulfilling and the most in line with our potential. 
Adam's book is truly fascinating. You'll definitely want to get your copy. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Also, check out his awesome podcast called Work Life with Adam Grant, where he talks with other super smart humans like Malcolm Gladwell and Brene Brown and James Goodall and many, many more awesome people. He talks about what it takes to have a more fulfilling and enjoyable work life. I always have so much fun talking with Adam. And just like last time, he makes it really interactive. And actually, he put me in the spotlight a few times. So I know you guys are going to love this conversation. Okay, without further ado, please welcome the brilliant Adam Grant. Adam Grant, welcome back to the show. How are you? So glad to be back here, Kathy. I've missed your energy. I love your energy. It's a very like matchy-matchy, resonant thing going on. Um, We're going to talk about your new book, which is called Think Again. And let's talk about why on earth you decided this book must come into the world. Do you want the real reason or why? I want the fake reason. No, I mean, I, th- there are all these stories that make sense in hindsight, but I don't, I don't really honestly know why I wrote it. I think I wrote it because I've never done this upfront, but kind of backward sense-making. I think in order to write a whole book about a topic, I have to say three things are true. Number one, I have to have a question that just keeps me up at night and I can't wait to explore in the morning and I annoy everyone I know talking about it because I just, I'm, I'm so curious about it or obsessed with it. And so I just, I got really interested in the fact that so many people are, are reluctant to rethink opinions, knowledge, assumptions, decisions, career paths, right, right up your alley. So that, I think that was the first thing that happened. I think the second thing that happened was I saw terrible things happen to people who didn't rethink Uh, I saw companies go out of business. I saw students get stuck in the wrong career paths. I saw friends fail to walk away from abusive marriages. And I thought, this this matters. This has consequences. And then the third thing that happened was, I said, okay, it's interesting to me. It's important to the world. But do we already know a lot about it? And you've read many books that document the biases and flaws in our thinking. I couldn't find that many that actually helped with getting better at rethinking. And eventually I decided, okay, no one else is going to write this book. Maybe I should. So here we are. Oh my God. It's so good. And I love that answer. I just feel like you gave me like the most nutritionist lunch. Here's the thing is I want to dissect it further, of course, because you're right. There are so many books and so much evidence about how our thoughts are not facts and how most of the time they're trying to protect us and leading us astray, like straight into the past or straight into where we don't want to go. And then we're like, okay, I get it. But then what's the process of understanding how to look at a thought, rethink a thought and come to a conclusion that's really actually aligned. So take us there. I mean, I don't know. That's why I wrote the book, (laughs) trying to figure it out. I have questions and I I think I have frameworks now that have at least helped me think about how to think about this, which is a very meta statement. But I think, Kathy, as, as you know, the framework that really stuck for me was realizing that a lot of what stands in the way of thinking again is the mindsets that we carry with us. And a lot of the time, we don't even realize that we're in these modes. But my colleague, Phil Tetlock, described it best when he said, look, we spend a lot of time thinking and talking as if we're preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. Which is, just pause for a second. This is weird. It's very weird. I have never been a preacher. I don't have a law degree. I can't stand politics. And yet, after I read Phil's paper and talked to him about it, I couldn't get this out of my head. I've had plenty of... Yeah, plenty of moments in my life where 
I have just, I felt like my job is, well, I've discovered something that's important and I need to proselytize it to everyone else. I'm, I'm preaching. I've had many more moments where I thought someone else is wrong and my job <laughs> is to tell them that they're wrong and win the argument, prosecuting. And every once in a while, I find myself caught in politician mode where I'm telling someone something that I don't really think is true, but I know it's what they want to hear. And I'm trying to win their approval by campaigning and lobbying and flattering. And I think we all do this. So let me start, Kathy, by asking you, when you think about thinking like a preacher, a prosecutor, and a politician, where do you get stuck the most? Oh my God, I love you. I love that you actually make this interactive and you always ask me things during the interview. It's so fun. Um, I'm for sure the preacher. You know, I'm like, guys, let's look to the future. Here's all of my best advice for you. Come under my wing. I'll take you with me into the rainbows. That's where I get stuck. Then we shouldn't get along because I'm guilty of being the prosecutor much more often than any of the others. And I think sometimes that's the biggest clash because if you're sure you're right and I am convinced you're wrong, you're not <laughs> going to see eye to eye on anything. So this is, this is a puzzle for us to solve. But by the way, I, I think there's a time and a place to preach, prosecute, and politic. I think it's a problem though when it comes to reconsidering our decisions and opinions. Because if I'm a preacher or a prosecutor, I already know I'm right and you're wrong. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not even going to consider the possibility. It's my job to change your mind, but I get to stick with my convictions. And if I'm thinking like a politician, I'm really just concerned with whatever's going to curry favor with my tribe, not what gets me to the truth. Uh. So I was trying to figure out what to do about that. And the alternative that, that really stuck with me was, I want people to think more like scientists. And I'm going to try to say this like a scientist as opposed to a preacher, because it's, it's very tempting to blur the line. But when I think about the mindset of a scientist, it's the most valuable training I've gotten in my life was to think like a social scientist. And what that means is every time an idea occurs to me, I say, well, I don't know whether that's true. It's a hypothesis. And now I need to go out and test it. And in the real world, I might test it by trying it out. I might test it by observing what other people do. In my life, I like to test it by running experiments and say, okay, if, if I change my behavior, what happens? And I'm just as excited to find out I'm wrong as to find out I'm right, because that means I've learned something. And so my hope is that, that people could adopt this mindset a little bit more often and say, well, if I have the humility and curiosity to know what I don't know and find out what I could know, I'm going to discover a lot more. And that's, that's going to teach me new things. It's going to turn me into a lifelong learner. And in an ideal world, what happens then is, well, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is part of thinking like a scientist. I think this might happen. There's some evidence that it could happen. I don't know that it's going to work for everyone. But I think what, what I want people to do is just to say, look, you don't have to believe everything you think. You don't have to internalize every emotion you feel. Your thoughts and your emotions are just first drafts. I would never publish the first draft of a book. I would never frame the first draft of any art that I pr produced. Actually, I would never frame any art I produced, period, because I can't draw or paint or do any art whatsoever. But I want people to treat their own opinions with that kind of mental flexibility. It's so good. And I was just talking to students in my program about how when we are beginning to question and we're beginning to open up to something new, a new framework, a new path, we're sort of walking away from the old self. And the old self is 
the thoughts and feelings that you fire and wire together constantly that create your mood, that create your actions and all of those things. And when you walk into this future, it's unknown. Now you're walking away from what's familiar and that feels really uncertain to the body almost. And I've gone on to learn a little bit about the way that this works. And like your body literally is addicted to some of these thoughts, like certain thoughts give you certain chemicals and cortisol and your body wants to go back into the shame and the self-doubt and the worrying and the concern and holding on to whatever opinion actually makes you feel bad because you're kind of addicted to that feeling of suffering and everything beyond it kind of feels expansive and unknown. And it's hard to walk into that. It's hard to even question because there's a reason we hold on to these fixed ideas or these bad relationships or these whatever somewhere, somehow it makes us feel safe. Right. Yeah. I, I never would have thought to put it that way, but I think you're on to something that one of the things I, that I care a lot about from think again is the idea that we often prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. And I think that comfort is at the heart of feeling safe. And the way you just described it helps me make sense of why people cling to old identities and outdated opinions, because at some level, it makes them feel like, okay, I'm not taking a risk. And even if this isn't good, at least it's not unknown. And it's predictable, right? It might be a predictable bad, but the uncertainty could be an unpredictable worse. And that's terrifying for a lot of people. So I want to make this concrete. Kathy, tell me what's an old identity or image that you're trying to shed right now. An old identity or an image. Some, okay. Something you believed or something you believed about who you are. Um, I'm very much a pleaser. So there are situations where someone makes me really uncomfortable or I'm with my parents, either one of them, and I'll just play a role because I don't want them to be upset with me. And it's like, I know logically, first of all, they would be fine if I got up and interrupted their story because I had to use the bathroom or if I said, oh, I can't make that dinner. Can we change the time? And yet it's like, it's so hardwired from childhood that it's like, just please just don't rock the boat. Just say yes. Go to the Christmas party, you know, like that kind of thing. And it's amazing that that trips me up, but it does. Okay. So that's a great example. So I think what a, what a scientific mindset would do would be to get you to say, okay, what's my theory of what might happen if I act a little bit more disagreeable? So what is your theory? Well, when I'm in my centered self, I'm like, it's fine. But when I'm in that part of myself, that old self, it's like, oh, then they're going to be mad. And then if they're mad, I'll be really uncomfortable. And then if I'm uncomfortable, I won't be okay that they're uncomfortable. So I have to make them comfortable so I can be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a lot of gymnastics. The, the contortions that you just did to make that theory even make Ridiculous. sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds, it sounds silly when you say it out loud. Right. So then I guess the Exhausting. next question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like a lot of work, but the next question I would have <laughs> is what, why are you so afraid of being uncomfortable? Right. Isn't I've been discomfort uncomfortable how we all grow? the time. Yes. And I'm always uncomfortable. Um, yes. I think that there must be God, what you just said, by the way, by the by, why are you so afraid to be uncomfortable? I mean, that should be a whole podcast. Like, why are we? Well, so it could be. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's start <laughs> episode one. No, no, I mean, this is really interesting. Cause I, I feel it too. I'm also highly agreeable and I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in an Uber, Kathy, and the air conditioning is blasting yes! and I'm shivering. 
like, but this isn't my car. I can't, I can't tell the, the driver to turn it down. And so I've literally had my teeth chattering and I say nothing. Me too. I've had moments where I'm in a massage and I really want to take a nap and the person just keeps talking, the massage therapist. And I really want to say, I just want to take a nap. Never once, never once have I accomplished that. So then I'm like, damn it. I gave to this person and even answered her at, oh, really? Tell me more about your brother. And it's like, I don't want to listen to it. Oh my God. I've been in that Uber so many times. Okay. I've never gotten a massage, but Sounds what? like this never the same experience. Wait a second. <laughs> never never occurred to me to get one. Is that I strange? Mean, it, it well, yeah, it is a little bit strange. But I so understand that was such a perfect example of the Uber. I get it. Well, no, no, but the the way you describe sitting on the massage table, that's every long flight where the person next to me starts talking. And my only goal on any long flight is to come home not behind on work so that I don't feel pulled between family and whatever might be due. And instead, sometimes it'll take me three hours to extricate myself from a conversation with a complete stranger just because I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. This is why I love Larry David and Billy Eichner, because they just walk up to people and they're like, this is what I actually want to say. And you're like, <laughs> yes, hero. That's what I, everybody wants to say to move back. You're a close talker. Everybody wants to be able to say, I have to go and I'm going, but no, we don't. Is well, that I- how you feel when watching them? Cause I, I have to tell you, I think Larry David is hysterical. I think hysterical. Seinfeld is the greatest TV show ever made. There are times when I watch curb and I just, the cringing is so painful that right. I have well, to he, pause. He heightens it so much. So he, he wants that. Exa- he knows that. In fact, I heard him say on an interview, He's, someone was like, is this who you really are? He's like, I wish I could be this person. <laughs> no, I'm not. This is my dream, right? So yeah, it's uncomfortable. Okay, it's so he, he, he's playing Larry David. He's playing it. I get it. Okay. All right, so let's go back to the question. Why is that so uncomfortable? Oof. It must just be a hardwired, literally hardwired thought and feeling. There's a synapse there that's just like really, really tight where... That was something, a learned behavior of that's not safe. If someone is uncomfortable, you will not be safe. And you need to make sure they get back to comfort so you're safe. Yeah. Okay. I like that. How do you rethink that? How do you rewire it? Well, you start, I think, by saying what you said, just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. And then therefore you feel slightly more you know, open to something new and then you try it. And I think the more you try something, you gain confidence because you started applying something different and got a different result, which changes your thought, right? Does action ultimately lead you? Is that where we're headed? I don't know where we're headed, honestly. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to live in, in scientist mode more often and not prosecutor preach. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of, inter- I guess right now I'm interested in exploring this question. I think I think your hypothesis is consistent with data I'm familiar with in psychology, which is that I have, I have had a very hard time changing people's thoughts and opinions. And I know the model that I was trained on originally is that you change people's beliefs and then behavior follows. And in my experiments, I much more often find the opposite. I change your behavior and then you start to reconfigure your beliefs based on that. I love that so much. That really empowers me. That makes a lot of sense. And so the question is, how do we start 
down that path of even changing the first behavior when it feels so scary to do it. But at yeah. some point, I guess everybody who you're talking about or your own moments what, that you're referring to, at some point you did do that. What yeah. causes you? This is one of the things that I rethought while I was writing Think Again is <laughs> there's this narrative, especially in the US, but I think in a lot of countries around the world that, that in order to be successful, you have to build a certain level of confidence. And if you don't have it, you're just, you're not going to try. You're going to aim too low. You're going to give up too soon. And I think all that's true. But when I look at the evidence, it seems to be the case that the reverse effect is stronger. So yeah, being more confident can motivate success, but it's actually more powerfully the case that when you achieve success, that builds your confidence. And I think what that led me to realize is you don't have to wait until your confidence is built up to achieve a challenging goal. It's actually the experience of achieving a challenging goal that boosts your confidence. And I think that goes right to the heart of your question, which is, okay, how do I start then? How do I begin the behavior pattern that might lead to the accomplishments that, that raise my confidence level? I think for me, so much of this is about having a script, just a basic idea going in of what I would say. And once I have that script, I can rehearse it a bunch of times. I can say it out loud. I can test it with people I trust. And then I want it to be so familiar, so second nature that I don't hesitate to use it. And I, I think my problem is I don't have a, <laughs> the Uber air conditioning is freezing script. And I have a general script about how to disagree without being disagreeable, but I don't normally use it in situations where I'm dealing with a complete stranger. And so I feel like I need something more specific to put it into action. So what I would do, I guess what I, you can tell me how this would work for you on the massage table. My Uber version of this is I need to sit down and think through, what could I say that is minimally offensive to the other person and also makes it look like I'm not a completely unreasonable person? And it would probably be something like, you know, I, I don't know. I grew up in Michigan. I used to have very high tolerance for cold. I'm not that way anymore. And I've become a total wimp. I'm so sorry. I'm kind of freezing. Would you, would it be possible to turn down the AC? Which, you know, hopefully they just feel sorry for me at that point. And then, then I would, I would reject that script and say, mm, no, I don't think that's really true. I'm not bothered by the cold in general. This, this person is turning the car into Siberia. So I don't want to be dishonest. All right, let me, let me try a better version of the script. I'll try one more. And then I want to hear yours. I think what I might be more comfortable saying is, what would I say? This is why this is so tricky. I think what I need to get comfortable saying is just, I'm so sorry to do this. I'm kind of freezing right now and I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Is there a, is there a middle ground that we could find? Perfect. I think that's perfect. I would turn down the air for you. Well, I appreciate that. I don't think I'll ever have you as an Uber driver, but no, no. What? Okay. What would you say? To the massage lady? Yeah. I would say if I had the strength I would say, I have three kids and I haven't slept, so I might fall asleep. And I, I'm so sorry if I fall asleep. I'm just so exhausted. This is really smart because you're preempting the awkwardness. <laughs> you're, you're, no, you're leading with this, right? Before, before the person starts to talk your ear off, you're already giving them, you're foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. It's you're allowing them to make sense of your behavior with the most benevolent explanation. You said a, a phrase that surprised me and that I have to know more about. Why did you just say, if I can find the strength? Why does it take strength to just admit that you're really tired? 
That's not uncomfortable. As, That's not about no. the other person. That's just yeah. a little bit of self-disclosure, which is something you do every day on this podcast. That's true. But it's because walking into any conversation where I am putting my feeling and what I need ahead of anything that could potentially be for the other person. There it's it is. Just old. Yeah. Familiar. There. Okay. That just hits the nail on the head. But if you really feel that way, would you be going to get a massage in the first place? What, what if the masseuse doesn't like giving massages? What if this is the only thing that person can do to support themselves? Are you worrying about that? No. Okay. So what's different about admitting that you're tired? Yeah, you're right. I don't want to be right here. I'm just, I'm curious. No, no, no. it's Why really, it really, it's really powerful. It's really, really powerful. And you start to realize all these decisions that we make based on these feelings, based on these thoughts add up to a lot. And you look back and you go, I got so distracted from who I want to be, from having the experience of who I want to be on this planet. And okay. then I'm not showing up even as my true self. So then other people are not even getting the experience they were supposed to maybe get by me bumping into them in the middle of this universe. Which is a lose-lose. Right. All right. And then the other thing I wonder is, who is that person that you want to be when you make that choice? That's a version of just, I would call it like coherence, like where there's a coherence between how I actually feel, how I want to feel, and it's all lined up and it's not me out of alignment with myself. It's me feeling like I'm the centered version of myself. I'm kind, but I'm also what I'm doing is in alignment with what I really want to be doing, not with all these things that maybe are old devices to prove myself, to protect myself, to earn something from somebody else. That just all gets in the way. If I can reflect that back to you, I think you just said you want kindness without sacrificing authenticity. Yeah, that's good. All right, so how are you going to do that? Um, it's about not playing a part because you're codependent on needing someone to feel safe and really just trusting that people have agency over their own thoughts and feelings. And we're going to do our, our best to be the kindest, most genuine people we can be and say whatever it is that we want and we need to say, and we will, we will allow other people to have responsibility for their reactions. Are you saying it's not your job to manage everybody else's emotional experience in life? Yeah. And that's what, how could you say such a thing? My God. And it's like the hardest thing for me. Is that in the work that you've done? Is that very, very prevalent? Is that very common? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's, I guess it's at the heart of my early work on givers and takers. What, what you're describing is probably I the, remember most, what, it's the yeah. most common play to the giver is thinking it's my job to take care of everyone else and make sure that they get the help they need and that they're okay. Uh, and obviously I think there's, <laughs> I don't want people to rethink their value of generosity. I want them to rethink what generosity means uh, and that, yeah, to, ex exactly as you said it, that other people have agency and choice and it's their responsibility to decide whether they want to, to dump their problems on you or, you know, yeah. take charge of their own challenges. Yeah. Let me ask uh, you this question because the biggest beliefs that I love for people to re-examine that 
come up so often that it's startling. I would use the word it's startling. It's upsetting. It's this, I am not enough. Things won't work out for me because I'm not enough. I'm not worthy of stepping into anything other than these these scenarios that make me feel less than. I deserve that. And it's so much, and it's so constant. And um, I wonder how we can help people like dislodge that from being at the forefront. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, I mean, a big part of that sounds to me like imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. And one of the strangest things about imposter syndrome is if you look at the research that's been done over the past few decades, it's just as common among successful people and maybe even more so than it is among people who haven't accomplished much yet. And I started to wonder, what if, what if we get this wrong? What if imposter syndrome, at least in, in its normal form is not a barrier to achievement, but is actually part of the fuel for achievement. We had a doctoral student, Basima Tufik, who's now an MIT professor. Basima's hunch was that when we make it into a syndrome, it becomes debilitating. I'm, I'm sure, Kathy, you know, and you work with a lot of people who probably have chronic imposter thoughts. I am never good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm a fraud. Everyone's going to find out that I haven't, I don't deserve anything I've achieved. And that, I think that obviously hinders motivation and, and performance in a lot of ways. What Pestimo was interested in though was the more everyday imposter thoughts that kind of waltz into all of our minds. What if I'm not prepared today? What if I'm not as good as I was yesterday? Maybe I've lost a step. Maybe the world has changed and what made me successful in the past is not going to really help me in the future. It turns out that she studied investment professionals and medical professionals and tracked their performance. And she found that how often you have those imposter thoughts has no bearing on the quality of decisions you make whatsoever. And on average, it actually improves your judgment as an investor and the compassion you show as a medical professional. I'm so freed by this right now. I can't believe this. I would not have ever guessed that. And that makes me feel so calm because then you can just kind of let the duck squawk in the back and know that that's not going to interfere. It just is. It's just kind of burning off steam. I think you could look at it that way. I even have started to wonder if you could go a step further and say, you know what? We talk about giving yourself the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we should give ourselves the benefits of doubting ourselves. So when you never feel like an imposter, it's easy to get complacent. You think you know all the answers. You do things the way you've always done it. And sometimes you're overconfident. Feeling a little bit of that twinge of maybe I'm not good enough. That motivates you to work harder. It motivates you to learn more from the people around you. It takes you off a pedestal. It puts you more in a beginner's mindset or in a growth mindset. And one of my favorite people that I learned from when I, while I was writing Think Again, Hadla thomas Dotter, uh, she ran for the presidency of Iceland and nearly won as a completely unknown candidate. And she told me that the biggest key to her success was imposter syndrome. Because for a long time, she said, who am I to run? I'm not qualified. And then at some point she said, well, who am I not to run? And she said, technically no one's qualified. This job is bigger than anyone. 
And if I can keep in mind every day that this job is bigger than me, then I'm going to be challenged to try to grow myself into the job. And I found that incredibly uplifting. So inspiring. So empowering. What's the difference? How do we know the difference between overthinking, which is a kind of a stressful predicament, and questioning because you're getting out from under Neath the tornado of the overthinking. How is this different? That's a great question. Let's be clear. This book is called Think Again. It's not called Think Forever or Overthink <laughs> or Think Yourself Into Analysis Paralysis. And that's, that's for a reason. I don't want people to constantly second guess every single decision and opinion in every day. What I think, though, is that too many of us do our rethinking in hindsight, and we'd be better off doing a little bit more of it with foresight. How many times have you made a decision and then just found yourself beating yourself up? Why didn't I question that? Why didn't I reconsider it? And I would like people to do that up front more often. How often, I guess, is one of the big questions. And the research on super forecasters that I cover in the book is especially relevant here. There are these tournaments where people compete to predict the future. And it turns out that the best forecasters, and it's simple questions like, you know, what's, who's going to win the next World Cup? Or who's going to win the next presidential election in a given country? Or a few years ago, was, was Brexit going to be accepted or rejected? And they get scored on, on whether they're right, but also whether they have calibrated confidence. When they're right, were they pretty certain? And when they were wrong, were they extremely uncertain? And if you look at what the great forecasters do, the single biggest predictor of looking into a crystal ball with some degree of accuracy is not how gritty you are. It's not how smart you are either. It's how many times you update your forecasts. And then the data suggests that the average forecaster in a typical tournament will update about two times. So I make a given prediction and then I revise it twice. Super forecasters, the best of the best, they update four times on average. So all right, twice as often sounds like a lot. It's only two more times, right? It's only two more rethinkings over the course of what might be a month or two of focusing on a problem. And I think that's a good benchmark to keep in mind. I don't know that it applies to every person or every situation or every decision, but just to say, okay, however many times I would normally reconsider this decision, if that's one or two, maybe I should give myself a third or a fourth shot at this. And that'll give me a better chance at not regretting this choice I'm making. Oh my God. That's so incredible. Wow. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I'm having quite often with our listeners about perfectionism. It feels to me like our average listener has this notion that I will make a choice or I will make a thing. And if it's not going to land and hit the target, I will have failed. And that feels very hard to do. But the process of making something in beta or iterating or having a podcast and then changing its name or starting off doing a coffee shop and then you realize you're just making biscotti and that's all you actually make now is biscotti feels really uncomfortable. Wait, that's very specific. Did that happen to you? <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but it does happen very often that like people start off with one thing and then of course they're led to this other thing that they only even saw once they did this thing and then they do revise a few times. In fact, I would say that the majority of successful people who've been on the show really didn't know 
where they would wind up, but they knew Mm -hmm. where they were headed and then it changed and they went with the winds of change. Mm -hmm. But again, I think there's something with perfectionism that doesn't allow for a creative process, a work in progress. Yeah. And what do we, what do we do to give people permission to revise, to be messy, to start somewhere and not be so appalled that that's not where you end up. Why is that so stressful? Do you think? I think it's stressful because we live in a world where people get punished for deviating from a plan. They think it's a signal of failure and it almost seems like you're throwing in the towel. You're quitting. Nobody wants to be a quitter. Almost every successful person I've ever met is a great quitter. Uh, They're also full of perseverance and grit. Right. And I think the question of when to grit and when to quit is is a tightrope walk for a lot of us. I think that one of the ways to overcome this pressure to be perfect is, no, actually, I'm going to rethink that. I guess I would say perfectionism is, is, is a commitment to a myth. I don't know anyone who's perfect. I don't know any performance that's ever been perfect. Right. You take the person who was the best in the world or the best ever in any field. Would Einstein say his theory of relativity was perfect? Would Jacinda Ardern tell you her leadership in the pandemic was perfect? You could do this in any domain. And so what is this illusion? I think it's, it's coming from a good place, which is wanting to be better. And I think where we trip ourselves up is we aim for the best as opposed to better. So I guess I would say to any perfectionist, what you should be aiming for is mastery, not perfection. Mastery means you keep improving and you can see your progress along the way. It means you compare your performance more to your past self and less to other people. And it means that you probably don't even believe in the idea of best practices because that implies an endpoint. What you're looking for are better and better practices. So good. I love that because this idea of like perfectionism is a myth. Have you ever seen it? And no, I heard somebody say that there's no straight lines in nature. That's not Mm. part of nature. There's no, there's no straight line. There's nothing linear. Look at a tree, look at a road or not a road, but a mountainside or anything. There's no straight line. Yeah. I love that Atlantic article that came out a couple of years ago that said success is a squiggly line. And then it just said, hey, if you draw the path of anybody who's achieved something inspiring, it has all these bumps. It looks like uh, it looks like a wave as opposed to a line. And I think the sooner we recognize that, the easier it is to reframe our struggles and our setbacks as learning experiences. Okay, Kathy, I'm going to rethink something here. One of the mistakes I made in our last conversation was that I've waited until the very end to ask you what I could have done better. And we're not done yet. Let me ask you now. I'll ask the question differently so you're not tempted to just give me the same answer. Question now is, of the way that we've approached this conversation or anything I've said so far, what do you think I should be rethinking? Who is this person? I mean, I've just been kind of mesmerized by this conversation. What do I think you should be rethinking? I feel like one thing that we could rethink is really giving people a more, let's get even more concrete as to how this shows up today. How's this going to show up today? Good. And what's one thing by the end of the day that we could do to take a step toward 
more intention or, or being more in beginner's mind or whatever that idea is that you're hoping people will give people again, a more of a sense of expansion. What can we do about it today? And what's one thing that we could maybe predict might come up today that's going to allow us to practice this? I think that's a great suggestion. Let's do it. I'm struggling to give you one only because when I finished writing the book, I went back and reviewed and said, okay, can I distill all the practical lessons? And I ended up with a top 30 list of how to be a better rethinker. Let me start with two. One is, this is something I learned from a great super forecaster, Jean-Pierre Bougam. When he starts to form an opinion, he makes a list of what would change his mind. And it just keeps him honest because once he makes that list, he knows he's willing to be flexible and there are things that could happen that could shift. So if he takes a job, for example, uh, he has a list going in of like, you know how going into a job, a lot of people have deal breakers and there are certain considerations. There's a, you know, a toxic culture or an abusive boss or a really boring job where people say, okay, I just, I would never accept a job if it met any of those criteria. What Jean-Pierre would do is he would say, I won't stay in this job if it becomes anything like that. And so he keeps that list handy to hold him accountable before he's gotten attached to it, before he's gotten sucked in, uh, when he's still thinking clearly. And I think that's a great suggestion. I think the other thing I would do is something that I've, I've been suggesting to my students for years when they, they say, look, I wanna spend enough time in a first job or even you know, a second career to figure out whether it's right for me. But I also don't wanna get stuck in this trap that we talk about in class of escalation of commitment to a losing course of action where you, know, you, you go exactly. and become an investment banker for two years. And then you think, well, I've already put in all this time and you know, learned all these skills and I can't just walk away now and start my career over. Right. And then you wake up a decade later and you hate your job and you've never rethought it. So they wanna know how, how they balance that. And my advice to them has been just in your calendar twice a year, have a career checkup. There doesn't have to be anything wrong. It should be in your calendar twice a year, no matter what, the same way you go to the doctor, even if you're healthy. And the point of a career checkup is to ask yourself, has this organization changed? Has this job changed in a way that's, you know, that's no longer desirable to me? Or have I changed? Have I evolved my values or my goals in a sense that this is no longer a good fit for where I want to go and who I want to be? And I've had students say, you know what? I reached a learning plateau or a lifestyle plateau, and this is time to make a change. What I like, Kathy, about doing this twice a year is it doesn't force you to be in that overthinking trap. If it's in your calendar every week, you're never going to commit and go all in. Uh, But I think there's something about doing it a couple times a year that you can say, okay, you know, if I have a bad day in the job, I don't need to immediately worry worry about quitting today. That reminder is going to pop up in a couple months, and that'll be a time for me to step back and reflect. And maybe you will decide. I shouldn't keep my day job. I love it. And I, I, I want to ask you this because this is something that I notice comes up for people when they, they even consider asking a question like this. I think there's a fear that they won't like the answer and then that will create a lot of upheaval and they're going to have to do something about the fact that now they know that they're not okay. Right. Yes. Like there's a lot of, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And the reason I'm fine feels good is because if I actually asked if I was really okay, and then I find out that I don't really like the job or I'm not really happy where I am and whatever, fill in the blank, I have to then deal with that. 
Yes. And that makes me feel really uncomfortable. And so I think the majority of human beings, I think that the research shows is that they say, I didn't live life on my terms, right? That's what that hospice nurse found out was like the number one regret of the dying. Yes. And I think it's because that feeling of upheaval of now I have to do something about this. I don't know. You, I'm curious what you think. Maybe it's this feeling of learned helplessness where it's yeah. like, I don't think there is a way out anyway. So what good does it do me to be aware right? Maybe they don't see a a higher branch to reach for. What do you think? Yes. Yes. That. And also if you stay in that mode of learned helplessness, at least you don't have to blame yourself. This was out of my hands. So at least it's not my fault. Whereas if you could escape this miserable job and you've (sighs) chosen not to, well, I don't want to look in the mirror and see that person staring back at me because that person is a huge disappointment. So I'd rather, I'd rather say, you know what, life is hard and life sucks than I made some terrible choices and I should, I should be rethinking those. And yeah, I think obviously the, the time travel point that you made is right on, which is if you can fast forward into the, into the future, it becomes a little bit easier to ask yourself, well, what would you rather that, you know, you admit to yourself, I wasted the last year or that you end up looking back and saying, I wasted a decade. Hmm. What you just said is really big. And I think we should say at least one thing about it before we start wrapping up, which is accountability, that feeling of accountability. Cause it almost seems like that's related to everything we've been talking about. You know, it's sometimes part of the reason we're so much the preacher or the politician or the, the prosecutor is because we're so sure that somebody is at fault or somebody else is this or that. There's some version of not yes. being accountable in, in that. Yeah, I love that. And it actually, it goes to something that I ended up rethinking while I was writing this book, which is I realized I can't hold myself accountable for every single opinion that I want to question because the ones that I need to question the most are the ones that I take for granted so much that I don't even know that I need to question them. And what I've started to do is to really rely on other people to hold me accountable. Uh, I'd never done this before, uh, but I wrote about this idea that you're familiar with, that we don't just need a support network, we need a challenge network, a group of thoughtful critics who, you know, who believe in our potential, care about our success, and yet they wanna push us to try to help us reach that potential. And I've always had an idea of who those people are in my life. They tend to be disagreeable givers, uh, you know, in, in the sense that they're very comfortable with conflict, uh, but they're dishing out tough love. But I never told any of them how much I appreciated that. And what I did while I was writing the chapter that dealt with challenge networks and support networks was I contacted a bunch of people who have played this role in my life. And I said, hey, you may not know it, but I actually consider you a founding member of my challenge network. And there are moments when I haven't taken your feedback that well, or I've been resistant or defensive, or I just, it wasn't a priority at the time and I missed the point, but I wanted to let you know how much I value it. And if you've ever hesitated to tell me anything that could help me improve, then that's the only way you could let me down, right? If you've ever worried that you're going to hurt my feelings or damage our relationship by giving me some critical feedback, it's not saying those things that could damage our relationship. And 
once I put that out there, people started giving me a lot more constructive criticism. They started challenging me more because I think they realized that I, I was committed to seeing that as an act of generosity. Uh, and it is, right? That person is taking a risk. Even if I've told them I'm going to react well, I can't guarantee that I will in every situation. And they're taking the risk because they want to help me. They care about helping me. And I think we should all identify a few people. This is not your naysayers. It's not a bunch of trolls, right? It's your thoughtful critics. It's the people who tell you the things that you don't want to hear, but you need to hear. And you should let them know that you value that role they play in, in your life. And it's one of the best ways to make sure that if you forget to do the career checkup, that somebody will, will check in on you. I adore this so much because, you know, I was talking to Dan Harris about it and we were talking about like, what's like the gunkiest, like most gnarly part of the human experience. Like if you can whittle it down and we both landed on shame. And I was just realizing that why are we so hell bent on not changing an opinion? Why are we so afraid to take accountability? Why are we so afraid to lead and we make a mistake? shame. Oh my God, I did something wrong. Oh my God, I'm not perfect. Oh my God. It was, it was public. And I did somebody else notice and gave me feedback on something I'm doing. That's not perfect. And if we could release the shame and accept right here and now that we are so far from perfect, that there are parts of us that are completely a work in progress and broken and self-sabotaging and everything else and just welcome it to the table. Like, come have a drink with me. These parts of me that are like in the shadow that kind of come out and get in my way. And we could then like have good conversations, right? Like we could then be in this incredible expansive flow, but the shame must be the thing. It just keeps us from our growth and it keeps us from better conversations and probably better decisions. I love that idea. It's funny because I was just talking with Brene Brown about Think Again. And we had a whole discussion where at the almost the very end of it, I said, neither of us has mentioned shame. And I don't even think the word appears in the book, which was a, a missed opportunity and a blind spot for me. Because of course, as soon as I talk to Brene, I think of shame. Of course, when the ego gets in the way and tells us, you know what? You don't want to admit that you were wrong because people might think you're stupid or they might think they can't trust you. If only you had treated that as guilt instead and said, wow, I might be letting myself and other people down if I don't admit this. And let me try to, to write that mistake I made in the past and also avoid it in the future. You'd end up doing a lot more rethinking. You'd also just end up living a less unpleasant life. Yes. I think there's a lot there. This is like so fun. Like really talking I think to so you too. is so fun. It's like going to like the best concert or like, it's just like a carnival. I hate carnival. I can't sing or dance. So I'm like, well, <laughs> this might be the closest I ever get. Tell us where we can get the book. Anywhere. Uh, let's see. Think Again is available at your local bookstore. It's online. It's in ebook. And for the first time I narrated the audio myself, which I was hesitant to do because I miss Adam Grant's voice is not something a human being has ever said. Oh my God. But, but 
I got enough feedback from readers and I guess podcast <laughs> listeners that they wanted to hear it in my voice. I said, okay, I'm going to sit in my basement studio for a long time and say things I already wrote. And <laughs> of course, the hardest part of it was the book was done and there were changes I wanted to make and I couldn't undo it. So now I have notes for the paperback. Well, I just want to say something because it just, it's so like sitting here in the field with all the sparkles and rainbows, which is I'm always amazed at how you are so lovable and not snobby and pretentious at all, considering how smart you are and the credentials you have and all the the badges that have been put on your brownie vest. You're literally like so sweet and you make everyone feel so comfortable and you're the person that everyone's terrified in terms of like how intimidating your CV is. And you're just like, hi, I'm Adam. You want to hang out? Let's go get some ice cream. <laughs> so that's, that's like the coolest quality. That's very kind of you. Of course, you know, I, I feel like I should say two things on that. One is that, you know, there's part of that that I'm sure was a defense mechanism I want people to be comfortable. I want to be liked. And being, <laughs> you know, being an arrogant person is generally not a good path if those are your goals or values. But <laughs> the other thing I would say is there was a French philosopher who wrote that we are as much unlike ourselves as we are unlike other people. Uh, or if, if maybe the, uh, the William James version of it is good too. He basically said we have as many selves as we do people we know in our lives. And I think that, I think there's truth to that. Psychologists have found a lot a lot of evidence lately that we all have if then signatures. These patterns of okay, there are certain people who bring out a more humble, more curious version of me. There are other people who make me more insecure, and a version of me shows up that I like less. And you are one of the people who brings out the I don't need to prove myself here. I'm here to try to improve my own thinking and figure <laughs> out what we can all learn. So I thank you for that. That is so nice. Before I let you go, I want you to tell us where we can find anything else, podcasts and all the other cool things you've been working on for so long. Oh, it's again, very, very kind and gracious of you to ask. I guess I would say adamgrant.net and my TED podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant, strangely, uh, is about the science of making work not suck. So good. You guys better go subscribe to his podcast, get the book. You're always a delight. Thank you for this afternoon. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you, Kathy. It was a treat as always. Thank you for having me. You're the best. How great is Adam? It's just so awesome to talk to him. If you want to see me speaking with Adam on video, you can go to Kathy Heller, the YouTube channel, because we are posting all the video content there. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, be just as excited to find out that you're wrong as to find out that you're right because you learned something. Number two, have the humility and curiosity to know what you don't know and find out what you could know. Number three, you don't have to believe everything you think. You don't have to internalize every emotion you feel. Thoughts and emotions are just first drafts. Number four, achieve Achieving a challenging goal doesn't require confidence. The confidence follows the action. Number five, imposter syndrome is not a barrier to achievement, but part of the fuel towards achievement. Number six, give yourself the benefit of doubting yourself. Number seven, aim for mastery, not perfection. Mastery is continuing to improve, seeing progress along the way and comparing your performance to your past self instead of other people. And number eight, build your challenge network, have people around you who believe in your potential, care about your success and push you to reach the highest version of yourself. 
Okay, now I want to shout out a few wins from some of our Made to Do This alumni. So Deirdre said, this week I had the idea to call a friend of mine who works for Parenting Magazine and ask her if she had any contacts from maternal health charities who might want to partner with me for a lullaby writing initiative. And she did. I sent her contact an email today and it was scary, but I remembered it's just a fellow mom on the other end and I want to serve. So I'm letting go and letting God and P.S. as a bonus, after I did that, I got a super surprise royalty check for a lullaby I released years ago. It paid for half of my made to do this. Thanks for the God shot. All right. That is just incredible. I love the synchronicity and how it shows up when you raise your hand and you're available and you do the scary thing of putting yourself out there. God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, it is truly there to guide you to where you need to be. And I can't wait to see where this road is going to keep taking you. So please keep us posted, Deirdre. You can give her Instagram some love. She's at the songinside.me. All right. Here's the next win from Naema. And Naema said, I just sent a quote for my vegan cooking and educational services at an in-person self care retreat this October. It's my first one and I'm so excited and proud of myself for getting the ball rolling. This is separate from the virtual demos that I plan to start beta testing next month on my own platform. It's even more special because I was invited to participate in the retreat just feeling so blessed. Hey, Emma, this is awesome. And I'm so, so excited for you. I love how you're trying and testing all these different things like retreats and demos, and you're not afraid of being in beta. That mindset is going to take you to even further heights than you've already climbed. You guys can go say hi to Emma on Instagram at Emma underscore sings. And Emma is spelled N-E-E-M-A. All right, so I'm going to now share today's giveaway winner. Remember, I'm doing these giveaways every Monday and Thursday. So if you want a chance to win a cute hoodie or a mug, just leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or post about the show on your Instagram and share what you love about the podcast and tag me at Kathy.Heller. So today's winner is Gretty G. And here's what she said. Always multiple takeaways. I love the people that Kathy interviews. Many of them are new to me, and I always learn so much about not only them, but have multiple takeaways. Great life advice. Today, I listened to her interview with Eliza Schlesinger, a comedian I've never heard of. I paused to re-listen a dozen or so times. Thank you, Kathy, for your excellent guests and questions. So inspiring. Well, Gretty G, that is so nice. I love Eliza as well. And it is just so nice of you to take the time to do that. It means so much to me. And it really means so much to me that you're here listening, all of you, because I know that there's so much that you could be doing. So thank you for listening to this show. And I will continue to show up and and be the best version of me for you because I think about you guys every single day. And I want to be here to encourage you and inspire you. And I'm so grateful that the show seems to be resonating. So if you want to hang out for five days, it is absolutely free. I will be there showing up. I have so many things that I want to share with you for five days. We're going to talk about how to get clarity on what your thing is, how to truly step into abundance. We're going to talk about overcoming imposter syndrome. It is going to be five jam-packed days of goodness. You can go to kathyheller.com slash challenge to sign up and grab your spot. And if you want all the awesome episodes that we have coming up, because there are so many good guests coming up, just subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify wherever you listen and leave a review if you want to be entered into the giveaway. Finally, I'm curious, did this episode land with you? Can you think of someone who could benefit from hearing it? If the answer is yes, then go ahead and text them the link or email them the link. Let them know about the show. Post it on your Instagram and tag me at kathy.heller so I can repost as many of these as I can. And also tag Adam. He's at Adam Grant. And let him know that you enjoyed the conversation because you have no idea what this means to our guests. They come on the show and they're always like, Kath, your audience is second to none. I've done so many other shows, but I come on your show and I get the most incredible feedback and connect with the coolest people. So they're definitely always excited when you tag them. I'll leave you guys with a song of mine and I will talk to you tomorrow. 